Welcome back to the nationally syndicated Price of Business show. I'm your host, Kevin Price, talking to you about you and your business. Is your business to know about the law and how it's affecting every aspect of your life? Is your business to know about what's happening that's really important in the media front, particularly as it relates to the law? And so that's why I'm really excited about uh, John O'Connor joining our uh, media team here. Uh, he'll be doing uh, reoccurring commentaries on business, the law, the political front, and the media. And we're delighted to have him join us. Uh, he's distinguished in uh, the legal profession. Uh, he is an experienced trial lawyer practicing law in San Francisco since the early 70s. And he has tried cases in state and federal courts throughout the country. He served as an assistant U.S. attorney in Northern California, representing the United States in both criminal and civil cases. But he may be best known for his work as the attorney of Mark Felt, whom most of you know as Deep Throat in the uh, Watergate uh, situation. And uh, he became very familiar with the role of the Washington Post in Watergate in his representation of Mark Felt. And so uh, he brings a lot of experience. He also wrote briefs regarding uh, Patty Hearst, the United States versus Patty Hearst, and really had himself involved in some of the biggest lawsuits of the uh, 20th century, representing the uh, federal government uh, in the vast majority of those cases. So we're delighted to have him. He's going to be bringing his interesting insights uh, every other week here on the Price of Business show. You can learn more about him and his work at postgatebook.com. That's postgatebook.com. And that's the name of uh, the, the book that uh, he talks about most often. It relates to media, Postgate. And again, that's postgatebook.com. All right, with that, John O'Connor. Thanks, Kevin. The Price of Business has asked me to comment on the recent acquittal of Igor Denchenko. Just days ago, a federal court jury in Virginia acquitted defendant Igor Denchenko of lying to the FBI, the second defeat for Russiagate Special Prosecutor John Durham in his only two trials. This defeat has led some pundits to claim that the loss was devastating and punctures the central underpinning of the entire project, to wit, Denchenko's claimed massive deceit in the infamous Steele dossier and therefore in the FBI's case in conspiracy with the Clinton campaign against ex-President Trump for alleged Russian collusion. But nothing could be further from the truth. There are far more arrows in Durham's quiver, not yet shot. Moreover, this acquittal does not mean that Denchenko did not lie. It means that, according to the jury, he did not lie as proven beyond a reasonable doubt. I'm sure the same jury would say that, yes, Denchenko probably lied, and indeed, there was clear and convincing evidence that he lied. He simply did not lie provably beyond a reasonable doubt. The best example of this issue is O.J. Simpson, who had two juries decide his guilt for murdering his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, with the juries considering each of the three standards of proof available in legal cases. So yes, O.J. can truthfully claim he did not kill his ex-wife beyond a reasonable doubt but he must admit he did kill her by the preponderance of the evidence and by clear and convincing evidence. So why did Denchenko get acquitted, and what does it mean to Durham's overall purposes? Prosecutors often must explain to a jury why their main witness 
or witnesses are unsavory people. The saying is oft repeated, when you must cast your plan hell, you will have devils as actors. To be sure, Durham did not have devils as witnesses, which, by the way, can often be quite convincing to a jury as they detail the actions of the defendant. They often appear, as odd as it may seem, to be highly credible bad guys. When Mafia turncoat Sammy the Bull Gravano testified against Teflon Don John Gatti, Gatti's Teflon coating was quickly scraped off. But Durham had as his main witnesses something far worse. He had two main FBI witnesses who were extremely partisan anti-Trumpers, whose bias led them to be, at bottom, incompetent agent whose bias produced falsely favorable evidence for Danchenko. The FISA program of James Comey was a horridly swampish project, as we all know today. So when your play is cast in the swamp, you will have swamp creatures as witnesses. But in the D.C. swamp, its creatures are not transparently criminal. Rather, their modus operandi is to appear to be straight arrows while concealing their corrupt partisan schemes. This description applies across the breadth of the swamp, not just the FBI. Indeed, the FBI had since 1924 always been fair game wardens in the swamp, only recently converted to sliminess, and at that only at the headquarters level by the self-righteous James Comey. Durham had six witnesses to testify at trial. Three minor witnesses, female FBI agents assigned to the Mueller team, were less than stellar, but Durham still did drag out of them that Denchenko's untruths affected the FBI investigation and therefore were material, a necessary criminal element. These witnesses were not key, even though their performance could perhaps be graded only as C-. The three main and more important witnesses were Charles Dolan and the FBI agents Brian Auten and Kevin Helson. Dolan for decades had been a solid Clintonite going back to the days of Bill Clinton. But in this case, he was not only pro-Hillary and anti-Trump, but also, as a longtime acknowledged PR agent for the Russian government, a pro-Putinite who conferred with Russian diplomats, read spies, while assisting Denchenko, himself determined by the FBI in 2010 to be a Russian agent. One FBI agent was Kevin Helson, who was Denchenko's handler during the three and a half years Denchenko spoke with the FBI. FBI agent Brian Auten was Helson's supervisor. Where have we heard Auten's name before? He was the agent who first was assigned to the Hunter Biden case. Auten not only quickly closed the file, but did so under an FBI code which indicated it was ended with finality, therefore not to be reopened. Of course, the case was reopened, however half-heartedly. Of more sinister import, Auten devised the theory that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation and likely affected the 2020 election. Auten's supervisor, Thomas Thiebaud, was fired, and Auten was referred for disciplinary action to the FBI's Professional Responsibility Unit. So not a great witness for Durham. Now, saving the best for last, the star, as it were, FBI witnesses was one Kevin Helson, Danchenko's handler. In January 2017, Danchenko had admitted to the FBI that the allegations he sent to Steele about Trump-Putin collusion were just, quote, bar talk, unquote, and, quote, gossip, unquote, not meant to be taken seriously. While conservative commentators take this admission seriously, they should not. This was simply Danchenko's clever way of avoiding prosecution. In fact, he knew the allegations were lies, but wanted them to be taken seriously and published by Steele and his dossier to be taken seriously. 
In either case, the anti-Trump allegations of collusion were admittedly lacking in any foundation. What did Comey's vaunted headquarters team do with Denchenko? Did they refer him to prosecutors for clear fabrication to the FBI where the dossier was meant to go? Did they attempt to have this Russian citizen deported? Did they at least tell the FISA court and ask that the FISA warrant be revisited and rescinded? No, they doubled down and hired Danchenko as a confidential human source, ostensibly to develop adverse information on Trump, while knowing Danchenko was a liar. But even this purpose was a pretext. Comey's primary purpose was hiding Danchenko by making him a confidential source which of course can be hidden from all prying congressional eyes, who then would learn that Denchenko's allegations had no basis. After all, we do not out our own spies so we can keep Denchenko hidden. Thus, Denchenko's supposedly serious work as a source was a joke. Who was assigned by this dishonest team to continue its dishonesty with a dishonest witness? One Kevin Helson, who so acted for three and a half years. It was five statements made to Helson and the FBI that were the crimes in the indictment. The problem was that Helson, undoubtedly as dictated by supervisors, did not probe with tenacity anything Denchenko told them after January of 2017. Normally, such a double agent will be consistently and tenaciously subject to doubt about allegations from a potential liar and do so with searching scrutiny. After all, we don't want to rely on a dishonest mold, correct? But Helson's true task was not to severely question Danchenko's truthfulness to determine whether or not he was a good agent. They knew he was a liar. It was to bolster his credibility. The more credibility, the more reasonable it was to keep the sleazy FBI investigation open. And the more credible they could make Danchenko appear, the more the FBI could later defend hiring Danchenko as a confidential, protected source. So Helsa did not go to tie down Danchenko, but rather accepted his statements at face value. The FBI incredibly paid Danchenko $200,000 for being a source. Good work if you can get it. When his job was ended, as Attorney General Barr began questioning the matter following the Mueller investigation, Helson recommended a departure bonus to Danchenko of $346,000. While it was never paid, of course, Helson had to tell the Danchenko jury that he recommended because, gosh, Danchenko was so darn credible and helpful. So without Danchenko being forced to get on the stand, the jury heard the FBI state under oath that Danchenko was credible. Danchenko was asked if he ever talked to Dolan about the collusion allegations. He said no. But no FBI agent asked the simple question of whether Dolan emailed any allegations to him. Now, it is likely that the two spoke about this since they were together for days in Russia. But the false allegations were also an email. So the judge, in my view appropriately, dropped the charge because literally there was no proof they, quote, talked, unquote, as opposed to email. The FBI asked about other communications with Dolan over three and a half years but never pinned down whether any of them were in writing. So one charge down. The other four lies charged were Danchenko's claim that he heard these allegations on a phone call he believed came from shadowy character, head of the deceptively illustriously named Russian-American Chamber of Commerce, Sergey Million. In fact, Danchenko got these scurrilous allegations from Dolan, not Million, with whom he never spoke. 
But in answer to one of Helson's questions, Danchenko said he spoke to Million on his cell phone, a lie he repeated four times. But on one of the questions, he added, maybe he used the confidential mobile app. This would not show up on his cell phone bill. Helson never asked, which app? And how would Million know how to get your app if you never emailed that information to Million? But Helson was not trying to test Denchenko's allegations because it helped bolster a phony FBI investigation to believe Denchenko so that they could claim their investigation was based on Million's statement. And of course, Helson never put Denchenko through the lie detector process. So the jury did not convict mainly because of the FBI's failure to follow through. Durham had to argue that the FBI's bungling should not prevent a conviction. But was this bungling or a willful suspension of disbelief by an FBI trying to justify its own seemingly criminal conduct in pursuing a falsely predicated investigation? Does this destroy Durham's investigation? I do not believe so. Had Denchenko been convicted, to be sure, Durham could have recruited a good witness against the FBI and Clinton conspirators. But there still is a viable conspiracy case against the main FBI and Clinton actors. So hold on. The big one may be coming.